Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Gene Hinchliffe. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Now, Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling, help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land. Treaty has never been made in Australia. Now, Jean Hinchliffe is a climate activist and organiser with School Strike for Climate. Lead the Way is her first book. It details ways to engage with the issues that you care about deeply and channel those energies into activism. So today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We're not getting into a work of literary fiction seeking to illuminate our world. Rather, we're exploring some practical writing and ways that we can make that change ourselves. Jean expands on her journey into social change and the lessons that she's learned about how to advocate for what you believe in. Oh, and Jean's still in high school. So yeah, the kids are going to be okay. And can we do any less and support them as they try to make the world a better place? Join me as we discover Jean Hinchliffe's Lead the Way. Jean, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me this morning on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this is an incredible story. The book, Lead the Way, it's, it's part guide, but also part personal narrative. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became an activist? Yeah, so I've always been a kid who had quite a strong sense of social justice, and I never really put that into action until I was in high school. Um, and I was in year eight, I think it was, and my first sort of step into the into any cause at all was the Yes campaign for marriage equality. And it was just the most fantastic experience. I was putting up posters and doing phone banking and attended all the rallies and I just loved this sense of making a tangible difference. And from there I got involved with Stop Adani and Get Up and then eventually School Strike for Climate um, where I've stayed ever since and it's just been such a fantastic journey with them. I think we're going to get a little bit more into this because you said that you make it sound so easy, but some of the things you you do, they're just so extraordinary. I want to ask you about social justice there. You talked about always having had a strong sense of social justice, but I think for some people that word maybe came into their lives later or they might still not have a sense of it. What does social justice mean to you? What has it meant to you throughout your life? For me, I think it's just, having a strong sense of empathy in a lot of ways because I'll hear about an issue and it just feels so devastating and upsetting to, to know it exists and to know that people are being harmed by it. So I, I think that pretty much everyone has a sense of social justice at their core. Like we all, it's sort of that innately human thing to care about others and to want others to not suffer. But um, it just sort of takes realising it and um, drawing that link between that sort of innate sense and the real life sort of political issues that are occurring today. So how did you go about it, identifying the things that you wanted to fight for? Yeah, I think that's a 
interesting question because I, I don't know if there was ever really a point where it's like, okay, this is my next thing. Um, I know with the Yes campaign, it was just, I was getting so frustrated by it and it seemed so ridiculous and absurd. And because of that, I like was Googling them and then I, I followed them on Twitter and saw an ad. I was like, oh yeah, I'll get involved in that. And then I think um, as I became more involved, um, as I said, in Stop Adani and whatnot, I started to learn more and more about the climate crisis. Um, and I think actually one thing that was quite a turning point was reading the UN report, which gave us a deadline of 12 years to um, avert the worst impacts of the climate crisis. And I think I just had this overwhelming feeling that I had to do something and that if I didn't, then who else would? Um, so I don't even know if there's a conscious choice of, oh, I have to go on to this now. It was just this really sort of intense urge to do it. The Yes campaign that you mentioned there, that I remember that as a very visceral time uh, in, in, I guess, as a nation, especially around the commentary that we would hear. I remember particularly, like, the suburb, I remember the demographics sort of coming out, and the suburb where I lived was in something like in the top 10, they put the top 10 yes votes. But then just one suburb or one electorate uh, over, it was sort of the top 10 of no votes. And I was really just curious about those communities that, that I lived in but lived close to. Do you think your community has been a big part of uh, your activism and how you've gotten involved? Yeah, I, I think that um, it definitely has been. Um, I've grown up in an area that that certainly is progressive and I feel like it's sort of given me that head start because <laughs> I think, I think that this is a path I would have gone to no matter what. It's more so that, um, yeah, growing up in an area where um, not just the adults around me, but other young people were very progressive. And then going to a high school, um, I, I go to Fort Street, which has a very strong history of social justice. And it's interesting seeing how many people in the activist space, um, or the adults and whatnot, um, so many of them used to go to Fort Street as well. And I, I think that that sort of helped me really strengthen my views and have the confidence to take a step into these spaces. Um, but I do think at the same time, I, yeah, I, I probably would have reached the same point just maybe a little bit later had I not grown up in such a community like this. Now, you started your journey into political activism uh, when you were sort of, you mentioned year eight, around 13 years old. We hear a lot of, frankly, patronising commentary from older generations, particularly from the current political administration, uh, about the relative power and responsibilities of younger people. I think you've got a great quote um, that our current, something our current prime minister said about what children should be doing. What do you say to critics of youthful activism? Hmm. Well, it, it's kind of funny because we get we get told our entire lives that as young people, our voices don't count, and what we say doesn't matter, and we're ignorant, and we should stay out of these matters. And then when we turn 18 and we're a constituent and we can vote, we are supposed to know everything about these causes and how irresponsible of us to not know everything and not care. And the, the fact of the matter is that young people are intelligent and they're informed and the issues that are occurring today will impact us to a very significant extent. And because of that, 
we want to make a difference and we want to make a change. And frankly, we don't really want to be the people leading it. I wish I didn't have to, I didn't feel such an urgent responsibility to be involved in activism. And that's the same with most other young people. But if our leaders and if adults aren't doing their job and they aren't fulfilling their, their responsibilities, what else can we do? I got very much from Lead the Way a message around education. You talk about it being a lifelong process and education always being a part of it. You're always learning new things. You talk about there, there being other activist leaders that you can always learn something from. But you also tell an interesting story about, I think it was your first meeting with uh, an MP, where I guess that kind of idea of education and information was almost weaponized against you, where this person really tried to leverage that idea that you were you were ignorant of the issues and and that he he had uh, I, I forget the quote but it was something something like well we our our experts don't agree with what you're telling us Do you- uh, yeah it was we, we, every time he said something it would we would bring something up he'd say oh my scientists disagree mm, mm, like he had a pet scientist in a cage uh, in the next room or something <laughs> Do you feel like information is starting to be weaponized in this way? Like everyone decides on their own, uh, their own facts? Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if it is a new thing, honestly, but I, I do think it definitely is used, particularly when politicians are engaging with their community. Because, um, yeah, the chapter of that bit is called How Not to Meet with an MP. And yeah, it's really such a patronizing and stressful experience for young people and really for everyone because you have politicians who are supposed to represent their community and who are supposed to represent you. And technically, really, they work for you. But as soon as you meet with them, they're sort of doing everything they can to um, divert your questions and, and to to brush over things and it's frustrating and I think that is that weaponization of facts because if they decide their own narratives and and pick what they want to believe it's really hard to disprove that because they're at that point they're not willing to engage in conversation and they're not willing to listen because they'll just say whatever and see what sticks yeah it feels very much that like the situation was you were being managed and a lot of criticism that is leveled against the current uh, administration is that they they try to manage things rather than deal with them they're just going to manage the way we see them until they go away now activism striking these are really embodied, very present events. You know, I've been to I've been to marches myself, and it's it's electrifying. You know, you've got all these like minded people around you, often less than one point five meters away from you. I mean, so much has changed in the last year. What impact has COVID had on your organizing, your activism? It has had a very dramatic change because, I mean, off the back of the September. 2019 strike where we had 300,000 people nationally attending these very closely packed, not at all pandemic friendly events. And then we were planning another one um, for May and suddenly everything we were doing had to be put on hold. We had to create an entirely new plan. Um, I think we were somewhat lucky in that we had been organizing through Zoom since school strike climate was sort of first initiated. So there was very little actual shift in 
the means through which we organized, but we had to sort of reinvent how we took action because nothing we'd done before would have been safe in this new pandemic. And um, because we are very scientific minded and then we believe in protecting people, we, we had to um, stay with COVID guidelines. And um, we did some digital events, which went really well. And then we also um, had the sort of strike school, um, which you call it, which is sort of free lessons from activists and scientists that kids would attend. Um, as well as that, we had um, some in-person things where we would have a small group and it might be situated at a bunch of different locations through a city or through an area. And those went really well as well. But it was, yeah, it was really just a matter of trying out everything and seeing what worked. You were literally on Zoom before it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> so that online world that's been so important for your for your activism, for your organising, it's very it very much is the world for so many people and increasingly so over the last 12 months. And yet we have this pervasive idea that um, an online petition or um, some sort of social media involvement is is not real involvement. What would you say then to critics of online activism who call it things like clicktivism? Hmm. I think that um, it can be sort of that clicktivism and, and tokenistic and performative activism very easily. Um, and I think with the, obviously with the Black Lives Matter movement, you did see a lot of that from brands and whatnot where it was, you know, voicing your support by posting something really quickly, but no actual change within how it works or in how they see the world. Um, so, but I think in saying that, that doesn't mean that online activism is inherently bad and performative. It just needs to be done well. Um, and I think that takes really like carefully considering what you're doing, what's the best way for people to take action how you sort of make it feel like a connected and, and unifying thing. Um, and, yeah, it, it just takes really careful and considered organising. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying here is that the action is the end result of a careful consideration process. It's, it, it doesn't matter until you've actually taken it into yourself, you've educated yourself, you've made that commitment to change, and then the action is how you communicate that to other people. Yeah, and I, I think it's also on that. Um, it's interesting seeing, I remember in the, the shift to sort of online activism with the pandemic, um, there are a lot of disabled people who had been already sort of centering their activism in the online space because that was what was accessible to them. So there was already this kind of, um, it, it wasn't sort of unprecedented in that way. It was just new for a lot of people. And I think that considering how much change has come about and how that has been really effective, um, yeah, it, it totally can be real and non-performative. Intersectionality is an idea that, and a, and a concept that has existed for a very long time. Um, you know, the, in the theoretical space, you know, people have been discussing this for decades, but in terms of the way that word has entered more common vocabulary, we're still kind of getting there. Now, you talk about intersectionality in lead the way and that need to consider what what your own privilege is bringing to your activism and is it inclusive this has become incredibly important particularly in um the women's march that you know only happened on monday i saw a lot of uh first nations activists talking about how 
they haven't felt included and that this can still be a space of privilege. Can you talk about what intersectionality means to you in your activism? Yeah, I think that um, intersectionality is about remembering how everyone who is of lesser privilege and, and everyone who is oppressed in some way will be impacted more by almost every sort of greater social issue. And I, I think it's something that is so particularly notable in the climate crisis because in what we see already, you have the vast majority, I think it's about 80% of the impacts of the climate crisis are felt by people in low-lying Pacific regions who really aren't polluting much and aren't using that much fossil fuels. And then you have, just within Australia, Indigenous communities have historically been hit um, first and worst by impacts of the climate crisis. And their sacred lands often are um, destroyed in the process of um, gaining fossil fuels. And it, it is an issue where it's so, so core to remember that intersectionality and consulting with people and remembering that your activism doesn't exist just for people like you. It is fighting for all people in all situations. Um, and I, I think that when you come to sort of realising that, part of it is consulting with people and talking with people and having conversations because like, as a white person, I don't know, particularly when I was um, like 13, 14, just getting involved, I don't know um, what First Nations groups um, and First Nations people would want out of a particular action or, or what was most inclusive or what wasn't. Um, and through having open conversations and researching a lot and, um, yeah, doing all that you can to learn and continue educating yourself, um, you can reach that point of having a very inclusive and sort of holistic activism. Mm. Now, increasingly over recent years, we're seeing activism across the political spectrum. And I say activism, but I guess it's it's something that presents as activism. And I'm thinking of things like anti-mask protesters entering public spaces to say they won't wear masks or anti-vaxxers begging the question ag- ad nauseum to the point that we're worried as a country about what's called vaccine hesitancy. Of course, there's also, you know, most famously, we have uh, the extreme right in America who talked about how they were they were protesting in America's capital. So activism can uh, exist on opposite sides of the political spectrum. How do you go about sorting through the issues? How do you know Mm. what is the right thing to be an activist around? Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting question because I I think that um, it's such a a complex thing because it is – it's difficult to say that there is a hard boundary between what is and isn't good and bad. I guess I think that a lot of it is looking at what a group, not only what they're demanding, um, but what they're saying. And it might be what they're posting about. Um, if it's something that you do believe in and you think is important and maybe you attend a rally and it feels like it is very self-serving and lacks intersectionality and lacks a 
drive for the betterment of society for the greater good and for all people. I, I think that that's a really quick indicator. Um, yeah, man, I, I think that's really tricky because there are a lot of, I guess you'd say, good people, I think, who might fall into the anti-vax camp or anti-mask who have been majorly misinformed um, and have fallen victim to this the fake news, I guess, mm. through particularly social media and whatnot. So I, I feel like, um, I guess, as part of that as well, it is taking the time to educate yourself and looking at a wide variety of sources and facts and what lots of different groups are saying and, yeah, really make sure you are looking outside of your own bubble to, to see the situation holistically. And so I guess then in Lead the Way, you provide this really comprehensive guide for people to begin their activism and some really really important steps which I know myself like you know the idea that you want to write to an elected representative I remember googling like how do you do that how how do you address this person and you really clearly lay that out in the book which is fantastic it, it it's kind of a one-stop shop for beginning your activism do you knowing knowing that this is sort of the sort of guide that could be used by anyone on an issue that they feel passionately about but maybe doesn't necessarily <clears throat> maybe doesn't necessarily better uh, an intersectional view of the whole community. Do you trust our elected representatives then to be able to sort that out? Do you, do you trust them to take the issues of the community on face value? Yeah, I really do believe that the majority of people um, won't fall victim to that kind of, I guess, extremist and negative things and that ultimately do harm people. And, yeah, I, I think that often when you see things, for example, like anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers, they are a fringe part of the community who have a very, very loud and entitled voice. But I, I do think that the average person is intelligent and the average person can... Um, yeah, it can, it can understand what is fact and can understand what is going to be helping the greater good. Um, but, yeah, I guess I don't know if I do really trust politicians <laughs> all that much, but honestly I don't think they're listening to many of their constituents at all. Um, and Sounds yeah, like people I, need I, to get I, louder. I feel, like it's, I feel like it's a matter not just of how they thought through the good or the bad things to believe, but how do we get them to listen in the very first place? So let's let's address that right now because the people listening, I mean, hopefully some of them are in their cars on the way to a bookshop to buy Lead the Way, but they still are going to have to read this book. What are a couple of tips that you can give? What are your top tips for people right now listening who are feeling disempowered? They want to do something today. How should they get started? I think the number one thing is looking at what exists in your community already um, because pretty much every neighbourhood, at least electorate, has action groups for a whole variety of issues and that sort of grassroots level, um, very community and locally oriented um, forms of action and, and sort of collectives are so impactful and really are the driving force of so much major change. Um, so if you look on Facebook or other forms of social media or even just online, um, 
100% see what exists around you and try to get involved. Again, continuing to educate yourself and continuing to have conversations with people all around you. And I think that means existing not just in an echo chamber with maybe the people who agree with you, but if you have family or friends or just know people generally who disagree on issues that you find are sort of upsetting and, and really harmful and have these sort of bigoted viewpoints and whatnot, I think it's really useful to have genuine and open and meaningful conversations. Um, and part of that is that it does really help you sort of consolidate your views and, and how you think, but it also, I think, helps you see where the other side is coming from and it sort of helps you to together find common ground and that's such an important thing to then um, be able to take action from. Um, and I guess the third thing is, is less specific but um, believe in yourself because I, I think not enough people do. A lot of people, particularly young people, could very easily make massive change and be really incredible activists and would probably want to, but are kind of scared to. And that it, it really does upset me because I know so many of my friends even who, who get care so much about these issues sort of hold themselves back from getting involved because there's that belief um, that you're not qualified or educated or informed enough to be able to make a real difference. Um, and particularly within activism, because it's not like, something that you can get a degree for you don't go to school and get a degree and know you're an activist now it's just a matter of believing in yourself and taking a leap of faith into these issues and into involvement which is really scary but just is so worthwhile yeah I'm going to echo that because I think we discussed earlier pervasive narratives from older generations saying that younger people have one thing that they should be doing and that's not activism and to come up against a narrative from a large, seemingly powerful group telling you that this is not what you should be doing, it's it's hard to go against those narratives. And I would I would echo yeah, the believing in yourself because if you if you can believe in your own story, then maybe those other narratives don't matter quite as much. Absolutely, yeah. Jean, thank you so much. I'm speaking with Jean Hinchliffe. Her book is Lead the Way. It's it's personal narrative. It's a guideline to activism. It's how to get started. It's how to keep going. It's how to educate yourself. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a really fantastic conversation. That's it for this great conversation with Jean Hinchliffe. Jean's debut book, Lead the Way, is out now through Pantera Press. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Now, stay in touch. You can find us on the socials. Look for at Final Draft 2 ser And perhaps a better way, subscribe in whatever your podcast app. It means you get a new Great Conversation every week. You get all our bonus episodes. And... Engage with us. I would love to hear your comments. I would love to hear what you're reading. And if you can flick us a like, it does help put us in the uh, in front of the eyes of more people who love books in the podcast world. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.